Has it ever occurred to you just how incredible grapes are? Now think about it. That little box of raisins your mother packed in your lunch bag was the only fruit that qualified as a dessert. And consider this. When we hear juicy gossip, we say we heard it through the grapevine. We didn't hear it through the apple tree or the berry bush. Grapes are so darn special that the grocery store expects us to snitch a few to ensure quality control. Try doing that with a banana or a pineapple. Admit it, every encounter you've ever had with grapes has been positive. That's why we created Grape Encounters, a place for adults to hang out and focus on the paramount achievement of grapedom. Delicious, irresistible wine. Wine brings people together. It starts conversations. It makes us happy. In fact, wherever there are grapes, there's gorgeous scenery, very cool people, and plenty of laughter. All that being said, let's bring out your guide for this journey. The Wizard of Wine, the Gangster of Grape, David Wilson. I gotta tell you what, there has been so much interesting stuff in the wine world news that we are overdue to talk about stories from all around the world that I think are incredibly interesting. And whenever I want to talk about something that's incredibly interesting, I invite into the studio Mr. Interesting. He's absolutely one of the, let's say, three most interesting people that I know, and it's Brent Keast. And Brent, welcome. Well, thank you, David. I'm dying to hear what the other two interesting people are. Well, (laughs) there are a couple of people that feed me information in a very big way. But I don't want to get into that because I don't have the time. Okay. But they're not actually, you know, necessarily wine people. But anyway, you are a wine person and you not only have worked at wineries for a long, long, long time and most recently one of the absolute best wineries on the Central Coast, but you've been making wine for a long time and raking in awards, right? You know what? I am honored to do that. It's rather scary when I think of a... I, I'm, I'm a pretty modest guy. And when I think of the fact that I won a couple gold medals, I'm honored. So you don't actually wear the medals around your neck and walk around town or anything like that, right? Well, I did have some some LED flashing lights <laughs> put on them, which helps. Well, anyway, the other thing about you, Brent, is you are a longtime actor, writer, radio voice. You do cartoon stuff now too, right? I do. I, I was very humbled to have been offered a series regular job on a cartoon. Can I hear a cartoon voice? Yeah, yeah. We, we have like did sort of a, that sort of voice you hear. That's sort of Walter Brennan. Sort of a Walt. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I I actually used to live right around the corner from him when I was a kid, but we're digressing. Uh, I want to start by talking about a conversation that I had with a dear friend of mine. Her name is Lynn, and she has a fabulous wine cellar, and she's kind of one of those people who will spend whatever it takes to have the things that she wants, but she works very hard for it. And I was telling her about this new technology that we have been talking about on Grape Encounters because it's so amazing. It's the Pure Fresh Wine System. 
And it basically does two things. The first thing is it removes smoke taint. So when grapes have been tainted by smoke from wildfires, rendered basically useless, you put them into these, they're like shipping containers, but much more than that. They're treated with ozone. Smoke taint goes away. That is very helpful because it's, with it's, all the fires in California. Well, in Oregon and even up in Canada, I think Washington as well. And frankly, all over the world, you remember just a couple of years ago in Australia. Oh my gosh. The entire country practically burned. Well, so anyway, going back to this, this pure fresh system is a game changer because it can recover these grapes. But the other reason that grape growers and winemakers are using the technology is because it does some other things. It will take grapes, you know, just ordinary grapes that have been harvested. You put them into the container for 24 hours. And what it does is it will remove the sulfur from the grapes. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. It will remove bacteria, but it'll also pull out the tannins and pull out the flavors. And so grapes that were sort of average or so-so suddenly become a whole lot better. And you can make premium wines from those grapes because the quality is enhanced tremendously. And they've got a whole lot of science behind it. And I won't get into that. And by the way, if, if you are interested in the system, just contact me and I will get more information to you. But I was explaining this to Lynn the other night on the phone and she said, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And I said, well, why is it terrible? And she says, because all those average grapes out there are going to suddenly be used to make premium wine. And I said, but they're not going to be average anymore. Yeah, and the world will be a better place. So this is the first discussion that I want to have today. She thought it was a bad thing because she likes the idea of different classes of grapes, I guess, and different classes of wine. And you got your cheap wines and then your semi-cheap wines and your moderate wines and your uh, a little bit pricey wines and then really expensive wines and then wines that you and I will never drink in our lifetime, right? Right, right. So the end result is whenever there's something that allows us to bring out the quality or bring up the level of quality in grapes, we get more good tasting wine, right? Well, you know, with the um, modern winemaking techniques and stuff, it's pretty hard to make bad wine. It's well, pretty I'm... usual to make mediocre wine. Well, okay. And here's a good thing to talk about for a moment. You know, if we were to go back to when you and I first started drinking wine, I don't know if wine was even in bottles at that time, but if you go back to the time when you and I first started drinking wine and you compare the quality of those wines to the quality of wines today, let's just say in the same price range with an adjustment for inflation and all that, the difference is night and day. Absolutely. And the style usually of those wines were very sweet. If we could go back to that time, those wines would be considered horrible, I think, compared to what we have today. Well, absolutely. But also our tastes, I think, have become richer. Well, we've certainly gone drier. Yes. But I will say this, the thing that I have noticed this past year or so is people are drinking a lot more sweet wine. And it's an interesting phenomenon. And I'm telling you, you know, I have a wine shop, of course. And if I sold one bottle of sweet wine in a month, that was a lot. People just didn't ask for it. Now I can't keep it in stock. Wow. Uh, they're drinking Moscatos, for instance, like mad. You know, anything that's sweet, the sweeter Rieslings hmm. are really going 
fast. And by the way, if you have not had a bottle of Riesling lately, and you got to be careful with Rieslings because they can be bone dry or they can be very sweet. And you need to ask your wine merchant what's in that bottle. But anyway, uh, do you drink Rieslings, Brent? I used to. Actually, I think now the, the style is a little bit too dry for me. Too dry now. Yeah. And by the way, if you get a really good Riesling, you're going to taste a characteristic in there that is kind of off-putting to a lot of people and it tastes like petroleum. Really? Oh yeah, but it's there in abundance and it's really the sign of a good dry Riesling, but not everybody likes it. Hmm. And frankly, it's not something that I love. I like to have a little honey flavor in my Riesling. Okay. So going back to the question then, is it better if all of the wines made in the future are outstanding or is it better to have different levels of quality of wine? Hmm. From a marketing standpoint, that would be difficult if they were all great. You wouldn't have four shelves. And One what giant I, and, shelf. And what I'm referring to, by the way, is that when you go into a store, the best wines are on the top shelf. And as you go down, they get worse and worse. I don't mean worse and worse, but just lower quality wines. Maybe the ones on the lower shelves are going to be wines that are made in bulk. Yeah. And you might not love those as much. Well, I think it would be difficult for a winemaker to have an expensive wine versus a inexpensive wine, because the inexpensive wine, if it's just as good, how can you charge more for a good wine? Right. Well, I'm going to leave it at this on this question. It's not just about the grapes. You can have the best grapes in the world and screw it up really easily. So a lot happens after you pick the grapes and there's so much that goes into winemaking. You can't even possibly imagine that that should be the thing that distinguishes a great wine from an excellent wine, from a good wine, from a modest wine to a terrible wine. And that's how I'm going to leave it. We're sitting down talking about what's in the news and what's on my mind with Brent Keast. We have not had Brent in for a long time. He's a great winemaker, great voice on radio and TV. Oh, thank you. And all kinds of other stuff. But anyway, we're going to come back. I've got some interesting stories to share with you, including I want to talk about coffee today for just a couple of minutes. That when we return with Grape Encounters. Walk into Total Wine and More, and you may just pinch yourself. With over 13,500 hand-picked wines, spirits, and beer, there's something delicious to discover around every corner. And their friendly guides are right by your side, eager to help you pick up the slack in your wine rack. Or recommend a bottle or two to match your menu. A crisp Pinot Grigio pairs with shrimp scampi or even potato salad. Bold cabs with balanced tannins bring out the best in Korean short ribs and a bacon cheeseburger. Sip a sparkling rosé when you're serving salmon any which way. When it comes to what's in store, you'll find all your faves. Always at the best prices in town. So, what'll it be today? Choose curbside pickup, in-store pickup, shipping or delivery. Explore more in store or at TotalWine.com. You're listening to Grape Encounters with David Wilson. We offer something for everyone. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to offer free wine. That's what your friends are for. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes, and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wine's O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality, as well as removing smoke taint. 
For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with pure fresh wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. You know, people often ask us if it's okay to chill wine in the freezer. The answer is simple. Only if your phone has a timer on it. Countless bottles have exploded in freezers because no one was watching the time. An hour is perfect. After that, you're playing with fire. Well, actually, you're playing with ice. But for now, just sit back and chill as we continue today's show with David Wilson. So, did you have your coffee this morning? I will tell you, I am one of those people that cannot start my day without a cup of coffee. But I will say that I don't drink a ton of coffee. I have one cup. Sometimes I have two cups. And despite the fact that I've been dieting like a maniac, I still put sugar in my coffee and I am never going to change. We've got Brent Keast in the studio today. And he is a connoisseur of all things. He's a really good, good winemaker, has spent a lot of time, a lot of his life, I should say, in tasting rooms, both as a customer and behind the bar, Brent, right? Ah, uh, yes. You've Do you like it. doing that? The best jobs I've ever had was selling wine. Really? Yeah. The thing is, you have to do that speech a lot of the time, which is you got to talk about which direction the grapes are planted and the composition of the soil and all of that stuff. There are certain people that really want to hear that. There are others that don't. And it, sometimes you go into tasting rooms and they just automatically start rattling all that stuff off. And it's off-putting to some people. You're absolutely right. And it does get boring because you know what they're talking about. It's like being in a play. But, well, being in a play, though, of course, you do have and a script that you are doing your lines from. But at the same time, you're attuned to the audience. Yeah. And you know if the audience is picking up on you, and uh, so you change your performance. I wish the audience would pick up on me because <laughs> I've been single for too long now. <laughs> I'm available. I would date my aunt. No, I wouldn't, but it's just, uh, yeah. Anyway, we digress. I started talking about coffee, and I, I want to talk for a few minutes about coffee because there is nothing that I think pairs better with wine than coffee. It's not cheese. It's not charcuterie. It's not steak or poultry or fish or anything. If you love coffee, you love wine. And I have found that to be true so much. So I just wanted to talk about a story that just came out that is a study of the top cities for coffee. And I thought people would be really interested in this. So what do you think that the number one city for coffee is in America? I would guess Seattle. I would guess Seattle, too, because it's the home of Starbucks. And right. you could just go over to Seattle's Pike's... Pike's uh, Market? Yeah, Pike's Market there where they have all the seafood. But they also have just coffee stands and coffee bars everywhere. 
But Seattle is not number one. Hmm. Want to take a guess at who might be? Well, maybe someplace in a cold, very cold climate like Alaska somewhere. Well, you know, you're getting closer. I won't drag this out. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon, sure. Number one place for coffee. And it's so funny because I went to Portland a couple of years ago because I was on my way to the Willamette Valley. And the first thing that my host did was take me to a really great coffee bar there. And we sat outside and it was just amazing. And the thing that I noticed while I was sitting there was that I could look in multiple directions and see other coffee bars. Hmm. So that was definitely interesting. Okay, just a, a rundown. Let's do the top 10. Portland is number one. San Francisco, number two. No surprise there. Seattle, number three. Here's a big surprise. Number four, Orlando, Florida. What? That's not a cold climate. No, it's a miserable climate there. Nothing against Orlando, by the way. I love that town. It's a great town to eat in. But coffee, I just would think, I think would be way, way behind my ties. Number five will just blow your mind. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Number six is Honolulu, Hawaii. But I could kind of get that. You sit out there, the trade winds are blowing, and you're just relaxing and whatever and have a cup of coffee. Um, Number seven is Tampa, Florida. Number eight is Miami, Florida. Isn't it interesting? In the top 10, you've got three Florida towns. We're talking about the best towns for coffee. This is based on how many coffee bars there are in the town. This is based on how much coffee is consumed. And then the last two, uh, San Diego and Boston is number 10. Now, LA, in case you're interested, is in the 12th position. And then going all the way to the 20th position, kind of surprising, New York. Hmm. New York City. New York City! Yeah, because uh, I was thinking that maybe one of the big pluses of uh, coffee would be places that were kind of crowded together where you would meet people for coffee at, say, 10 o'clock or something like that. Yeah. Very, very interesting, by the way. Kansas City, Missouri has the lowest average price for a package of coffee at $3.44, whereas Honolulu is the highest at $8.69. And then Fremont, California has the highest average annual spending on coffee per household, and it's $229.62, by the way. It's 3.5 times higher than Hialeah, Florida. Hmm. That's the city with the lowest price at 6506, so pretty interesting. But the big question is, do you drink coffee and then drink wine? Uh, no, you do not. You do not. No, two, you do not. That's a separate big uh, mistake. Occasions. Yeah, don't do yeah. that. Don't do okay. that. But you know what? Pairing coffee with wine is really super interesting. And if you go to grapeencounters.com, you can actually search for that. Search for coffee and you'll hear a whole show that we did on pairing coffee with wine. It was uh, some years ago, but it's online. You can find it there. All right, as long as we're talking about surveys, I thought that this was really interesting. This comes from Wine Opinions, and this is Wine Drinkers' Views of Climate Change. Hmm. And I just thought it was really super interesting. And they asked people if the impact of climate changes in the U.S. and other countries is already apparent. Hmm. And this is wine drinkers answering this question, okay? Okay. What do you think the percentage might be? 
Well, I think wine drinkers probably are more attuned to uh, climate change because of the way the crops are grown and what, what the yields are, et cetera. So give me a percentage. Oh, geez, I couldn't even think All right, that. it's 58%. 58%. Yeah, I would have actually thought that it would be higher. They also uh, asked uh, about climate change and if it's historically cyclical and there's no reason to be alarmed by recent weather patterns and a whopping 10 percent of wine drinkers agreed with that statement hmm so then the other one was prolonged drought in california is evidence of climate change and only 47 percent said that but that's still almost half of them right and then uh, there, there are others, but this last one is scientific evidence for warming of the climate systems is unequivocal. And 53% hmm. said that was the case. So more than half of the wine drinkers in America, I would say fairly strongly believe that climate change is mucking up our world. Hmm. How about you? Um, I have no opinion on that. You have no opinion? No. Okay. I am definitely a climate change person, and I I say this every week practically because it seems like climate change comes up all the time. Don't write me. You're not going to change my mind. You know, you don't have to agree with me. We're going to talk about other things, but, you know, climate change, I have seen too much wreckage, and so that's where I'm at. We're going to be back in just a moment with more Grape Encounters, and my buddy Brent Keast is in the studio. We're talking about what's in the news today. Well, actually, over the last week or so, and some so many stories to talk about, including wine intolerance, when we come back with more Grape Encounters. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything, from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure. Those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com. Eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. Are you following Grape Encounters on social media yet? You're not? Well, you should be. It's the best way to hear the latest, juiciest, unfiltered wine stories. It's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious, decidedly different wine conversations going strong. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Encounters. For tons of content on Facebook, you'll want to join our Grape Encounters radio group page. Or if LinkedIn is more your thing, connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal. The more you click, the more I'll pour. Welcome back to Grape Encounters. Did you know that in Old England, the word grape actually means berry? 
However, back in the day, grapes didn't want to be lumped in with raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, and so on. So they refrained from going by the name Grape Berry. That's what we love about grapes, always thinking. And we're thinking it would be a very good idea to turn Dave's mic back on. David? a cup of coffee on the break talking about coffee made me want some we have brent keiston here my winemaking acting great voice over guy friend well thank you for the invite it's great right. to be here well whenever i do news i like to have you in the studio i can bounce things off of you because you're just like made out of teflon <laughs> Right. <laughs> anyway, hey, something that's really super cool that I want to share with everybody. And it's a new website. And I just thought it was cool because it's a place where you can get wines that I'm super interested in. And I've actually talked a few times about the fact that wines from this part of the world are just really, really hard to find. And yet they're terrific wines. And the area is the Black Sea Basin. Do you know anything about the Black Sea Basin? No, I don't. Okay, so this one's just, this totally caught you off guard, Brent. Well, anyway, what's interesting, this is an area where I think some of the best wines in the world are being produced, but a lot of people don't know it. And among those places is the Republic of Moldova, which is absolutely a place that I need to go visit in the next year. Do you know anything about Moldova? No. Okay. So it's in Eastern Europe, right? It was part of the whole Soviet bloc at one time. But Moldova is super interesting because they have this network of wine caves that if you kind of add it all up and they're all interconnected, there's like it's like a street grid underground. We're talking about like 450 miles. Is this where caves. Putin had his wine cave? That's where he's putting his wine. Putting his wine, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's really an interesting, interesting place. So the other thing that's interesting about it is apparently everybody has a wine cellar there just like we have a garage if you're moldovan you have a wine cellar so there's you know super super interesting place but as i understand it really terrific wines and so this website is called winnet w-i-n-e-t and it's winnet.wine and you can just check it out but wines from Romania, Bulgaria, Afghanistan, hmm. Albania, Algeria, Bangladesh. They even have Bermuda, Bhutan. We talked about the Republic of Bhutan, which is a place that's just now making wine because of a friend of ours who started the wine industry there. So, yeah, these are just interesting places that make, as I understand it, incredible wines. And I'm going to support them. Have you ever had any wine from uh, one of these countries? Uh, Yeah, I've had a few. Bulgaria. Bulgaria, I've had wine from there. I've had wine from Romania. And I'm trying to think of where else. Uh, They even have Bosnian wine, by the Hmm. way. And, uh, oh gosh, it just goes on and on. I've had Austrian wines. Those are good. I don't think all of these places are part of the Black Sea Basin. Maybe it is. I don't don't really know. But uh, it is is super interesting. And I'm glad to see that those wines have become available. So, you know, hats off to these people who are doing it. And uh, you can go on there. And I don't know what they cost. I didn't really check. Well, let's just take a peek. I just am randomly pulling up a wine and uh, <laughs> and it doesn't say the price on it. What's the deal? Okay. Oh, you have to request an offer on on the wine. All right. I don't, you know what? I'll do that some other time, but not while we're on the air. Okay? There you go. 
Okay, so I said that we were going to talk a little bit about wine intolerance, and there was a great story on uh, September 18th that was written by Jancis Robinson, who is probably the most prolific and intelligent writer in the world of wine. She writes the Encyclopedia of Wine and has just a, a ton of books. I've had her on the show. Uh, in fact, she was my last interview in person before COVID. She's absolutely brilliant. But she was actually showcasing a study, a paper by somebody who had just become a master of wine. Her name is Sophie Parker Thompson, and she's from New Zealand. And it's talking about wine intolerance. Hmm. And the thing that's so amazing about this story is that we've got it all wrong. We have got it all wrong. Everybody thinks that sulfur or sulfur dioxide that's in pretty much every wine is the thing that is off-putting and makes people itch and sneeze and your throat scratchy and all of these other things, you know? Headaches. Yeah. And it turns out that it's just the opposite, that it's something that's called an amine. And, you know, you've heard of antihistamines, Amines, right? yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, you, and that's to make amines go away. But the interesting part of the story is that apparently sulfur makes amines go away, and it's the amines that are causing us all of these terrible symptoms, like headaches, nausea, rashes, flushes. Those are things that people say wine is causing them. These are effects that it has on them. And in fact, it's the amines that are the problem. And it's the sulfur dioxide that we use that makes the amines go, go away. away. Interesting. Is that crazy? Yeah. How about sleeplessness? Is that one of the... Uh... I don't know. Do you, huh. have, you, you have that problem? Yeah. I, that's the alcohol. Is that what it is? That is the alcohol. Okay. You need to cut back on your consumption. Okay. Actually, you have, right? Yes. I wasn't sleeping, and so I cut back. Yeah. it's uh, th That idea of having a glass of wine before you go to bed, not your best idea, by the way. There was something I, I had to pull this out of the drawer because it, it doesn't help me too much, but it's a histamine neutralizing enzyme that was released a couple of years ago. It's called Umbrelux. U-M-B-R-E-L-L-U-X. And it's a supplement that you can take and it'll wipe out those amines. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And so if you have wine intolerance, um, it is likely because of the amines in the wine and the sulfur actually makes them go away. But the less sulfur that's used, the more chance there are amines in the wine. I think I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, but I, I'm not sure. So what, what's happened over recent years is that we've used found, found ways to use less and less of the SO2. Right. And, the, you know, it's like a fraction of what used to be used. And that's because you have to put that warning on a wine bottle, contains sulfites. Yes. And there's a certain percentage, I don't remember what it is, that if you have that percentage of sulfur in the wine, you have to put that thing on there. And that's pretty much every wine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because in California, when you grow grapes, you dust them with sulfur to reduce right. certain organisms, etc. Right. And the, the sulfur stays. And it preserves the wine and it wipes out other bacteria and things like it's not a bad thing at all. But it turns out that things like dried fruit and salami, stuff like that, those actually have more sulfur dioxide in them than wine ever had. Absolutely. 
Oh, and everybody is cutting back, way, Jerky. way back. So you, the more you cut back, the more you have these amines, and the more amines, the more chance you have of adverse reactions to wine. Interesting. And by the way, one last thing before we take a break and talk about some of the cool things that our supporters are offering. I wanted to say that white wine actually has more sulfur dioxide in it than red wine. Really? What? Why? Because I think the white grapes are more vulnerable. And so it takes a little more SO2 to protect them. Mm. And so people will often say, I'm allergic to red wine. No, you might be allergic to red wine skins Mm -hmm. for some reason, something in the skin. You might actually have an allergy that's because of the tannin in the wine, but it's it's not the sulfites. Hmm. So get that out of your head. And in fact, the sulfites might be helping you where wine is concerned. So it's something that you can ask, but a lot of people are not going to know the answer. I don't know if a wine shop would know the answer. I certainly wouldn't. But if you're at a winery, they'll be able to give you more information on that, I think. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Yeah. All right. We got one more segment. We'll come back in just a second. I've got uh, some other really super interesting things to talk about when we return with Grape Encounters. Savor every drop of summer at Total Wine & More, because we've got a sizzling lineup of pours for the great outdoors, featuring our top 12 wines under $15. Taste your way to a new flavorite. Try ready-to-freeze cocktail pops and fun, fizzy hard seltzers. And here's our recipe for a delicious late summer evening. Take smoked ribs, good friends, and just add Cabernet. Let your imagination go grill crazy, from good old-fashioned hot dogs to turkey burgers with all the trimmings. You can't go wrong with fruity and fresh reds. And when it comes to seafood, salmon and tuna swim nicely with Chardonnay. So, no matter if you're grilling, chilling, or both, you're sure to find cool prices on over 8,000 wines, 4,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers in-store or at TotalWine.com. These days, it is critically important for you to like us on our Facebook group page or any other social media you connect with us on. Those likes help keep us going strong. Also, if you're listening to us on a podcast, please consider writing a review or giving us a thumbs up or five stars. It's what enables us to take you on trips around the world and share things about wine that are often overlooked. Thanks for being a part of the family. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wine's O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with Pure Fresh Wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. Wine has been around for 8,000 years. 
But if you happen to have any bottles that old in your cellar, you might want to drink them sooner than, than later. Actually, if you've got 8,000-year-old bottles in your cellar, they're fakes. Bottles didn't show up until the 17th century, so you might want to just put those pseudo-relics on eBay. With a proper disclosure, of course. Anyway, let's continue with a show that never tries to fake you out. Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. We're going to wrap up our discussion today by talking about water, because we think at least that water is an essential part of making wine. And of course, California produces close to 95% of all the wine that we consume domestically. No kidding. Yes. And that voice, by the way, is Brent Keese. And you know more than anybody, as much as anybody, I should say, that we got a really serious drought problem. Oh, we do. Going yeah. on. I mean, it is so serious. I saw a picture of um, a road that's going along the Colorado River. This was a couple of weeks ago. And it said that there's only 23 days of water supply left. And that was probably 23 days ago. Yeah. And I don't know what that really means, but I know that especially in Arizona and Nevada, that they're having huge water cutbacks. And I'm just surprised it's not happening in California just yet. Well, California has been and always has been a desert. And anything that uh, anyone can do to fight drought, God bless them. Yeah, there's one thing for sure that we've had droughts going on for the last 10 years at least. And the wine producers have found ways to use less and less and less and less and less water. And I think that's great. And I think a lot of people don't realize that in France, you're not even allowed to irrigate. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? Everything's dry farm. But it rains there. It does. And yeah. it never rains in California, but girl, don't they warn you. Don't they warn you. It pours. <laughs> man. It, no, and that's an interesting thing too, that, that song, It Never Rains in California. There's that line that says, it pours, man, it pours. And it used to. And I remember as a kid, it would pour down rain. And I loved going out and walking down the street near the, the curb and all that water was flowing. I'd take my shoes yeah. off. It was so super cool. But we don't get that kind of rain anymore. I don't know. I think that we do use water more because we have uh, so much crop production in California. So I want to talk about this because the place that's getting hit the most, hit the hardest, is the Central Valley of California. We talk a lot about Napa and Sonoma, the Central Coast. Uh, you know, these are places where you hear the most about wine. But but the Central Valley, which is just over the hill from where we are, is a huge breadbasket. They grow all kinds of things there, and they grow a massive amount of grapes. And those are the grapes that go into the larger production wines, like barefoot wine. I'm not saying all the grapes come from the Central Valley, but they produce a lot because it's so hot there all day long that the grapes just keep pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping. And so they get yields of over 20 tons per acre of grapes, whereas where we're at, it's what? What would you say, Brent? Well, four or five? Four, four or five, yeah. Four or five. But you get a higher quality grape when you have a lower production of grapes. And that's how that works. But here's the deal. In the Central Valley, everything's dried up. But I'm reading this story about an underwater store of wine that I really didn't know much about. And it's called the Kern Water Bank. And it's the most valuable water resource in the region. And apparently, you know, it's critical to the food supply there. 
And what I didn't know about it is that it's a public-private partnership. Did you even know that such a thing existed? No, I've never heard of that. Okay. And I don't want to get into the politics of this. I just don't because I'm not here to pass judgment. But I will tell you that one corporation, one privately held corporation, owns 57% of that water bank. Hmm. And I, I read that and I went, gosh, can that even happen? You know, I thought water rights are so sensitive, right? So you've got this massive water bank that is in part, I guess, owned by the government and in larger part owned by a private company. And it's a 32 square mile, what they call recharge basin. And, you know, basically they use these natural areas underground to store water and they somehow have a way of measuring how much water's there. and How do and they it, fight evaporation? Uh, well, it doesn't evaporate because it's underground. Because it's underground. It's underground. Ah. That's the cool part. You know, a place that has one of the biggest stores of water in the U.S., as I understand it, is in the Palm Springs area. And that's why they have whatever they have, hundreds of golf courses there. And they water them when it's 118 degrees outside. And all the rainbirds are going, and no problem because they've got all this water underground. Why? They're surrounded by mountains, mm-hmm. high mountains. And all that rain and snow that melts percolates down into this basin. And there's a couple of places where you can go and you, know, you can see the water rushing down underground. It's wow. really super cool. So it's a giant reservoir, but it's yeah. filled with dirt or sand then. Well, it's a giant reservoir that is basically, as I understand it, just a pocket under mm. there. So anyway, the point is, is that you've got this place in the Central Valley that stores 500 billion gallons of water underground. And then you've got a lot of farmers that cannot get water right now. And so I hope that they're going to be able to resolve that and that everybody is treated fairly. I don't understand enough about it and how right. it works and who contributed what, whatever. Because if you look at what's happening to the reservoirs in California and the lakes, especially the man-made lakes that were created to store water for people to drink and for crops, they are drying up. It is really, it's a huge problem right now. And if we have another year or two of drought, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. How do you take care of people? There's a huge dam that is south of, I guess it would be south or southeast of LA that was built not very many years ago. And that's why LA isn't struggling anymore. Because there's a massive amount of water that's been held back that would have just gone into the sea, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the way you solve problems. And we need a lot more of these catch basins. Yes. Like that. But anyway, I'll end it with this. In a lot of desert countries now, they've got a way to grow grapes without having any irrigation. What they do is they drill really, really deep holes and then they put loose material in there They get down to where the water is. The grapevine's roots, instead of wanting to go lateral, they go down instead because it's easier because everything's been loosened up for them. And they find the water way down there and they don't have to irrigate. That's great. Isn't that cool? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I saw that on an interesting special. So life goes on and it's just been a challenge where weather is concerned. And I'm sure that if you're listening in some other part of the country where you're getting monsoons and hurricanes and all that sort of stuff, you know... You can't even imagine our drought situation on this side of the country, but we got to do something. We got to fix all of this stuff. So we've got our work cut out, Brent. We do. That's going to do it for today, Grape Encounters. And I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you for asking. I love you, man. I love you too. We love you, listeners, and we'll be back with more Grape Encounters this same time next week. This edition of Grape Encounters has been brought to you by Total Wine and More. 
it's hard to imagine a more satisfying wine-related experience. Spend all the time you want at TotalWine.com or at your nearest store. Just make sure you're back here with me at this same time next week for another Grape Encounter.